It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Boris Johnson's position after the revelations of the number 10 lockdown garden party. And you ask us, is Labour right to speak positively about Tony Blair and the new Labour government? So we're recording the day after Boris Johnson did something he's been doing more of lately. Um, He apologised for attending the garden party at number 10 during the original lockdown on the 20th of May 2020. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. Well, I say apologise, but his wording was quite careful, wasn't it? Number 10 is a big department with the garden as as an extension of the office, which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May 2020 to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later to continue working, I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But Mr Speaker, with hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way, people who suffered terribly, people who were forbidden from meeting loved ones at all, inside or outside. And to them and to this House, I offer my heartfelt Apologies. This is the event that his principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds, sent an email to over 100 people for socially distanced drinks uh, from 6pm and bring your own booze. And I suppose it's worth mm. saying and, and reminding our listeners that this was at a time when people were only allowed to meet one person, one other person from outside their household, as long as it was outside in a public space, not their pi- private garden and at a two metre distance and pubs, restaurants, cafes, non-essential shops, most yeah, schools to most pupils were still closed and people couldn't say goodbye to their loved, dying loved ones and funerals were extremely restricted. Um, I'm sure you've both looked back at your calendars and looked at what you were doing that day. I think we were probably all just working from home. But I do remember that weekend mm. I got a Boris bike and cycled to Regent's Park. And even then I was like, is this allowed? This is quite far away from my flat. Um, so you kind of remember that time and how oppressive it was um, and the idea of inviting 100 people to, to a party um, or, or attending that party does seem quite bizarre. What do you make of it? Have you looked back at what you were doing? 
I have, and well, not on that day. I couldn't, I couldn't scroll back that far. But um, that weekend, same as you, that was the first weekend you could you could see people. Mm. And I traipsed. I was living in North London then. I traipsed across North London to meet my friend on Primrose Hill, and that was the first friend I had seen in months in person. Mm. And we sat so far away from each other and bought an ice cream, and it was great. Um, but just yeah, I. I think loads of us can remember that feeling um, of caution. And mm. there was that video circulating the second that the details of that party broke. Um, and, the, and the second the email was, was revealed by ITV News, uh, the video from the Metropolitan Police reminding people that they can only meet one person and... Um, you know, the no large gatherings, you need to be on your own or with your household. And yeah, that I think it's quite easy to remember the mentality of, of that time. Stephen, do you remember it? So I realise I just have like a big kind of like sort of box in my memories marked repressed, do not open. <laughs> um, like in, in both lockdown one and in for me, the worst, the worst lockdown emotionally was the horrible mm. dark January lockdown. When it's just this thing where I'm like, what happened from December to whenever it ended? I don't... It's like when people like, oh, 2022 was a terrible year. I'm like, was it? No, I think you'll find it started in May. I have absolutely no memory of my <laughs> second birthday in my flat. Like, and I think, in another way, both, both those reactions are why people are so angry. In that I realise... I don't want to think about what mm -hmm. I was doing on the 20th of May of 2020. I'd be very happy never to think about 2020 again. Mm. And I... I resent the rule breaking, but I, res I resent the obviousness of this one. This one more because it's like via email to a hundred people. I mean, why don't you? Why not just like have a file on your desktop marked crimes? Like, mm -hmm. like <laughs> well, this is the thing actually that really um, that I've been thinking about about these various party stories is even if you don't mind the rule breaking, and obviously that's a huge if, and that is what most of the public are outraged about. Do we want the people running our country to be this stupid? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, is that, is that unfair to <laughs> yeah. say? No, it's really like you really ought or, to be able to cover or, up a party you, better than that. Or do you want the people running your country to throw parties that are so bad people can attend them and not realise that they're a party? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also the full 100 I don't think turned up. I mean, we're still trying to stand up Absolute the numbers. But... failure of a party. How embarrassing, Martin Reynolds. <laughs> so should we talk a bit about, because um, obviously there are a handful of Tory MPs who have uh, been... Um, calling for Boris Johnson to resign, other people behind the scenes, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Douglas Ross. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on Boris Johnson at the moment, but there's been a, li a little bit of talk this morning that his apology maybe bought him a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. How has his apology or so-called apology been received? Um, I would say not not well. I think you know, one of the things I think it's easy to forget, partly because we obviously, by definition, we talk about MPs who are rebellious because they are the ones who drive discussions in the news. But the average MP of, of any party basically just wants to be told what to do to be constructive, right? They have a couple of policy issues they care about, but what they want is to have that sense of, oh, and this week I'm talking about the cost of living or this. And loads of MPs in marginal seats and yeah, a kind of just say, look, my mailbag is awful. This story is obviously making people really angry. They said, at least when we looked like crooks, you can see how people might vote for competent crooks over incompetent, honestly. <laughs> they said, but now we look like we look like crooks and idiots. They said, because the work event 
justification. They said either the prime minister's a moron, right, or the prime minister thinks the voters are morons and doesn't understand how obvious the lies. They said neither when I'm out on doors or, you know, I'm leafleting in like name of shopping centre redacted in order to protect the identity of this MP in a marginal seat. <laughs> they said, neither of these are lines I can I can use. So there's a lot of anger, particularly among MPs who are sort of directly exposed to it. But, yeah, I, I do think, despite the fact that it's very bad for the Prime Minister, I actually think that the really interesting thing is I think he'll probably be fine because the point several MPs made to me is they, would say, they said clearly what this reveals is there was a culture of just having parties with impunity, right? I spoke to a Conservative MP who was previously was quite loyal and saying they said clearly everyone in Downing Street had parties. Clearly there were private parties in the Downing Street. In fact, clearly there were parties in every major government department. Clearly you know, the, the, the only question is just how damaging this is in terms of, you know, what can be stood up. And maybe they're wrong, but that is, I think, a feeling that lots of MPs have. And they said, therefore, if he goes over this... This exposed, you know, the culture set from the top as pervaded throughout the structure means that for a lot of MPs, they decided they definitely want him gone, but they also feel they definitely need a reason that isn't the parties to facilitate it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I see. And I'm not surprised at the, what the uh, MP was telling you about his constituents being angry, because one of the things, one of the defences uh, that Boris Johnson sort of hinted at when he was making his apology in the Commons was, you know, he thought that this was a work event. People weren't working from home. This is his workplace as well as his, his where he lives, etc. Mm. And I was thinking about that and thinking, you know, even if you want to try and give give him as much goodwill as possible, actually, at the time, and I went back to look at the figures, less than half the UK working population were actually working from home. So more than half of people, even though the sort of discourse at the time was that everyone was stuck at home, were actually still going into their workplaces, mm. but they weren't having parties in their workplaces which they felt were justified because they'd been working so hard during the pandemic. So I do think that that, that defence, which, you know, maybe we'll learn more about it in the in Sue Gray's investigation, won't stand with the public, even though I think it's probably one of the things that they might be grasping for. And it was a, an oddity, well, maybe not an oddity, but it, that was a striking thing about the rules at the time. Mm. I mean, I remember um, a, a friend of mine who's a doctor talking about this, about how, you know, you'd be working with these people all day in like very, very tough conditions. And sometimes I, you know, she would say, you know, quite happily, they would kind of linger in the tea room a bit longer, even though they kind of knew maybe they shouldn't, but they were around each other all the time anyway. And that was the the only break and the only sort of nice social contact they were getting exactly, while, yeah. while supporting a lot of families and, and, and people through like horrible, horrible deaths. And I think, you know, that, that that applies to so many people, you know, certainly people in other parties. I I genuinely think some people have talked about this, not for it to appear on the podcast, <laughs> but, you know, like people in other parties are, are, you know, are aware of times when they had to go into the office and and film their party leader saying something and there's you know a group of them there late and it sort of got to dinner time and they were thinking well we could sort of eat together but they would just go home again Mm -hmm. because it didn't feel like even though the social contact had kind of already happened it just didn't feel like it was within the spirit of the rules exactly but I think that just clearly Downing Street was different um and I wish that I had from conversations with people in Downing Street, I just wish I had picked up on that and what that really meant sooner because they were all in the office. They had, you know, from really early on at a time when 
tests were not super readily available. They had big boxes of tests in Downing Street for people to test themselves all the time. They were all in the office because they kind of needed to be, you know, they're running the country. But it meant that that mentality that I think a lot of people had of sort of battening down the hatches and having to stay at home and barely leaving the house was not something that people in number 10 really had. Um, but obviously a lot like people working in hospitals had the same thing uh, and people in lots of other professions, people working in supermarkets, for example. But I think that it means that they they were all mixing. And then I think basically the thing that no, no one is saying is that their common sense was sort of telling them, well, if we can mix for work, why can't we have a drink too? And then that's where this sort of, this culture of insouciance mm. came from. Uh, but I think um, I think you're right that, I mean, I, I feel like the, the word I would use to describe Tory MPs is confused now. Um, I think that obviously they're angry uh, about this and quite uncomfortable about it. But I think that actually people sort of don't know. Like as, as Stephen was saying this, they want him gone. But there, I think there is maybe a bit of a feeling that Rishi Sunak isn't exactly ready. That might age terribly. He might come out and resign from the cabinet by, by the time this podcast goes out. But I think lots of people are certainly saying they feel like he isn't ready. And then I think that Boris Johnson's PMQ statement was really revealing that wording mm. um you know all I ask is that we wait for Sue Gray to deliver the findings of her inquiry I think that he is quite skilled at, at weathering these kinds of storms and even if people remember this and there is outrage about it forever it can't stay at fever pitch forever and he knows that and I think that um he's just put off the date of reckoning and the Conservative Party, it looks as though, has agreed to that. You know, even Rishi Sunak with his with his tweet yesterday saying that, you know, the PM was right to apologise and, you know, he agrees with his demand for patience to wait for Sue Gray's findings. Um, it looks as though like the, the Conservative Party is collectively giving him that time and by the time that she releases her findings, maybe he will be able to cling on. I think that was quite masterfully done. There's so many elements of that apology that, appear to be taking the public for fools but actually the way he's kicked the can down the road he's managed to do really successfully he got through yesterday with mm. no cabinet resignations mm, it's interesting because i think although that will count as a sort of a success on his part for his position that might be the worst thing that could happen to the conservative party that he stays on you know perhaps when the investigation's results come out you know she's not going to she's not going to say that he should stand down whatever her findings are perhaps he stays on after whatever that reveals perhaps the metropolitan police cuz i've been speaking to people in and around the met about whether or not there could be a police investigation they've they've decided not to at the moment perhaps they decide not to despite the findings of of the inquiry perhaps it sort of fizzles out because of this delayed deadline like you put it the stay of execution perhaps he does manage to stay on but will his reputation recover enough for that to be worthwhile for the Conservative Party to to weather? You know, mm. what, what happens by, by the time we get to the local elections? They get some bad results because they're still, you know, low in the polls. What happens when we get to the next election if he's still been in place for this time, sort of chiselling away at, at his party's reputation and then suddenly they have to pick a new leader and, and they look too inexperienced and then suddenly you can see a, a, a vision of a future where the Labour Party could become the party of government again, you know, so perhaps it's the worst thing for them that Boris Johnson is, you know, trying to deploy the last of the Teflon that's left on his, on the surface of his skin for, for weathering this scandal. 
See, I think that he's holding on and, and he might well weather this storm, but really things are kind of over for him now. Like the, the, the party has fallen out of love with him and I'm not sure we'll fall back in love with him, but it's maybe more that this this is the at the end of his authority, maybe. Uh, but he'll leave over something else a little bit more on his own terms. So he manages to weather this, you know, maybe later in the year where he can sort of present COVID as kind of finished mm-hmm. um, or Brexit is kind of finished and some sort of, he can lay a marker and say, I- I've done this and rather than being forced out. I think that the, the central thing is, is that if you are Rishi Sunak or indeed even if you're Liz Trust, right? So if you're Liz Trust, you can just about do a sort of semi-plausible sort of, well, I was too busy traveling the world, striking trade deals um, to know what was going on in, in Whitehall. But, you know, you, you really would have to be spending all of your money on JPEGs of apes to believe that if you have a situation where Downing Street is sending out emails to 100 people saying, come in for a party, then there there aren't also parties going on in other government departments, right? At that point, there is a cultural, there's clearly a cultural expectation of insouciance, as, as Alva says, right? So it's not even so much that he did enough to survive. It's that if you're Rishi Sunak in particular, right, what, so what the argument is, you, you didn't notice anyone going in and out of the building um, in which you live. You didn't ever go, oh, the, the garden seems to be awfully noisy for a family of two, a toddler and a dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so a Conservative MP, I would say, was not directly fond of Rishi Sunak, but they see him as an electoral asset. So they said, look, the really important thing is if the transition happens now, then Rishi would just look incredibly slippery they said there is there's no way through boris leaving through parties they said which does doesn't make rishi either look like a moron or a really bad person it would just make it look like he went well i I didn't i knew this was a problem but i didn't say anything or i don't think this is a problem but i want to be prime minister and they said that's a horrendous Mm -hmm. start to his his government that can't happen i think in some ways this is like the 2017 election result which in many ways was the effective end of theresa may's premiership now actually she achieved quite a lot in the, you know, like got the backstop, but actually quite good Brexit deal, much better than what we have now. Um, <laughs> the one that uh, got away. Labour MPs should have voted for it. <laughs> well, that may be the last time I can say I say this on air, but, you know, but they should have voted for it. Um, yeah, but um, her premiership had effecti- effectively ended the moment the exit poll came out. And I think in some ways this thing, they weren't going to get rid of her then because they were worried that would open up questions about, well, you know, is it Corbyn who would get sent for by the Queen? Or, who, you know, who would it be? What would happen? Yeah, they basically, they felt they had to go, look, we've won the election and we're carrying on as normal. And I think we're in exactly that kind of situation. You can't go, and this has really been the problem since Allegra Stratton stepped, stepped down, you can't accept the idea that the parties and knowledge of the parties, or at least even if you don't accept knowledge, right, just like being so lacking in grip that a party happens in your office without you knowing is a resignation matter without burning down a large chunk of the government, possibly in the wake of it. So I think, yeah, we're going to be in this weird zombie stage, not least because it does mean, yeah, and this has been happening a bit already, but everything now is going to be leadership positioning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This government's got, you know, a quite difficult first start of the year. The tax rise is coming in, Rishi Sunak's uh, budget on the 23rd of March. At some point it's possible that uh, there may be uh, a clash with Russia over Ukraine, and suddenly all of these things stop being primarily about the policy merits or lack thereof, but about the fact that, you know, 
an ally of, well, actually of both uh, the the cabinet frontrunners, said to me, they they said, yeah, they said the thing which is maddening is Rish can't have a sandwich without it being interpreted <laughs> as yeah. some kind of commentary <laughs> on, on Liz. Um, and that, I think is is the central problem for him now that everything becomes a commentary on on the government, its future, and I just don't really see that there is a way back from it. The the risk to the Conservative Party is maybe so. I think the people who think that it would be a disaster for them for him to go now are right, but it's possible, right? Then, as you say, it just does so much damage to the brand. Mm, and, it takes the brand, yeah, and and yeah, and kind of, and the new leader does not get a proper new leader bounce, and everyone goes, oh, if only we'd press the eject button now. That is the sort of the risk they have decided, I think, to take. With the disclaimer, then that may uh, age horrendously badly because you never know if your soil sample of people you've you've called is accurate. But um, but yeah, I do think that, that that is where they are at. Going, let's just weather it and find like some way to to dispose of this problem in a sort of less catastrophic way for the party. We were joking a few weeks ago that this political year would just be who is Rishi Sunak, who is his wife, <laughs> what is his net worth, <laughs> what is his net worth, <laughs> who is Liz Truss. Yeah. And I think that that literally could be the whole year. And then the question is, I mean, it's so fun and people who love politics, even though everyone pretends to be into policy, lots of people aren't. Everyone lives for this kind of stuff. Everyone loves to read profiles of leadership contenders and wants to find out who's backing who and how they're being wooed and, you know, fizz with Liz. Um, <laughs> we love we love that. But actually, what, what will that do to governance over the next year if the people in all of these different departments are posturing for the leadership and conducting their quite tricky roles at quite a tricky time with one eye on that. I mean, what does that do to Liz Truss on on the Northern Ireland Protocol and Brexit if she's got one eye on the Conservative backbenches and thinking about striking some sort of deal there that will will have the right optics for them as well as navigating the tricky politics with the EU and with all the different parties in Northern Ireland. It's probably not great for actually resolving that situation to feel a bit more indebted or aware of the vagaries of people like Steve Baker at the moment or maybe she's not courting his vote anyway but sort of being aware of the temperature mm -hmm. in the Conservative Party on that is probably not that helpful for resolving that issue <laughs> especially when she's been striking quite a conciliatory tone and similarly I feel like that could spin off in all sorts of different directions for Rishi Sunak planning his budget um thinking about whether he'll be leader soon and how to time various decisions around a potential election and so on yeah and if this really is the end of boris johnson's authority then another thing in their minds will be how do i distance myself from the prime minister as well mm -hmm. which obviously rishi sunak with the various disagreements over sort of how to run the economy has has already been doing, perhaps, you know, not on purpose, but I'm sure that that will intensify now because you don't really want to be tainted with being sort of an apologist for this guy who, you know, many people will be believing has lied to the country. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. From The New Statesman's World Review comes Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We did it. We did it, Joe. 
You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> I'm your host, Emily Tampkin, and I'll be joined by expert guests to examine how President Biden's core campaign pledges have held up, specifically foreign policy. We've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, the administration does not call the EU a foe. Immigration. I think a lot of people who were opposing Trump's policies, you know, most obviously the separation of the children at the border, I think may also find it very uncomfortable that they might be complicit in electing someone who is now keeping those policies in place. And voting rights. Just search for World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ask Us. Us. So today's question is from an anonymous listener. I was very interested to see your polling data on Blair's unpopularity. So this is a story by our polling guru, uh, Ben Walker, on the website, which I encourage all listeners to to go and read. Um, Slightly more unpopular even than Corbyn, despite enjoying largely positive media coverage. Is Labour wrong to assume that rehabilitating Blair and portraying Starmer as Blairist signals responsibility and trustworthiness to voters? Is the media wrong to assume that embracing and emulating Blair is necessary for Labour to perform better than Corbyn did? Um, I think that's a really, really interesting question. Um, what what do you make of it? Yeah, I love this question. I think it's the right one. I mean, I suppose the bottom line is that I don't know the answer. It's more, it's sort of fun to dwell on the question. Yeah. And um I think it just it is really clear. Actually, lots of Labour MPs have been talking about this, about the the quite huge opposition to um, Tony Blair being given a knighthood and lots of Labour MPs, even some quite far to the left of the party, kind of despairing over that. Um, but they've they've all been thinking about changing attitudes towards Blair and um, have been remembering, you know, before Blair won, um, the shift within the Labour membership, where someone was remembering Arthur Scargill giving some sort of speech, the way he would, he, the way he would every year, just sort of slagging off the Labour leader. And right before Blair won, people were just not applauding anymore because they were sick of losing. And certainly, Labour MPs, even some who would be towards the left of the party, I think, are talking in terms of Labour members certainly getting sick of losing. And then but yeah, becoming more content with just backing a winner, which is not something that comes as naturally to Labour as it does to the Conservatives. And if you, if you speak to anyone in the Labour leadership or around the Labour leadership, they 
all think that this is about caring about winning more and and taking the steps necessary and you know there are only three Labour leaders who have won Blair is one of them so you own him and his legacy that's very much their view and I suppose then it's just like whether the public believes that but sort of all of the assumptions underpinning that that people believe that Labour's heart is in the right place but will they be trusted with the finances and then try and then doing your doing your hardest to assure people that you actually can be trusted that calculation the kind of Blairite calculation there probably is the right one to make um but it, yeah it's just so interesting it's maybe less about Blair as a person and more about that strategy of winning and recognizing what concerns of voters you need to address well, I suppose I would like to point out, despite the fact I was unfairly painted by both of you as the fuddy-duddy who did not want to do Molly May, I would have much rather have done Molly May than this question. Really? Why didn't you say? Oh, you seemed you like... both seemed so enthusiastic about it. I didn't want to say that I oh. think this question's a silly question. But, oh, but, so, but, oh, oh, so... <laughs> but it's not because you tell us on air. Yeah, because, <laughs> on air, on air. <laughs> because, can hear us fight. Yeah. I said, I thought that, that, I think that's a really good question. And you said, what, the Molly May one? Yeah. And I said, and no, you look really miserable. one. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 what, what I, I was actually saying, hopefully, what the Molly May one, <laughs> not this. I, look, I, I'm sorry. Like, abort, I do not abort, we're doing Molly May, I'm I, joking. I, I do not understand what universe this questioner is living in. Like, in what way is Starmer a Blairist? Like, the, the central economic... Well, you can see I'm getting ready to, like, become my full, like, neoliberal self when I, like, um, rock up as the bad boy of Bracken House at the FT uh, <laughs> in, 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 at some point fairly soon. Um, but um, the central idea of the Shadow Chancellor is that we should insource a bunch of production and manufacturing from other countries back to here. Uh, the big idea for how you get high growth is to thicken labour market regulation, deepen the power of trade unions, restore collective bargaining. Now, lads, you can have any number of positions about whether or not those are good economic policies, but they aren't. Blair, right? Wake! You know, like, like, Blairism was, wasn't just a, like, a philosophy of like, oh, we're tired of getting beaten in elections, so maybe we should just try and moderate to win. It was a serious attempt to engage with what they saw as the successes of Thatcherism. And most of the things they saw as the successes of Thatcherism are the things that Rachel, you know, whether it's in like, you know, Rachel Rue's opposition to private contractors or to the labour market stuff or to the, you know, yeah, let's reinsource a bunch of high emission industries here in the UK. Why the hell not? Like, those are profoundly un-Blairite positions. The reason why I like this question was because I think that whether or not consciously our questioner did put their finger on something that has been done a bit differently by Keir Starmer to the previous two uh, Labour leaders before him, which is he has been positive about the legacy of Blair New Labour. Wilson, Atlee. Yeah, he loves doing yeah. his whole like, yeah. you know, the arc of... Yeah. yeah, and was uh, I think he welcomed um, Blair's honour, for example, which I think would have been a tricky question for Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn as well, maybe not so difficult for mm. Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so that's really different, and I think that's important because... Everyone who who you speak to who is sympathetic towards New Labour or was part of it will say our big problem is that we're always trashing the stuff that we did in, in government. Um, and so clearly there's been a thought process there within Labour's current leadership that they should stop doing that because that has, that has sort of been a hiding to nothing under previous leaders. But I would question that. I would... I mean, I, I think it's good to sound optimistic and positive about what Labour has done in government. That seems pretty obvious to me. But I would 
question how important it is in terms of electability because as Blair himself said voters vote on the future not on yeah. the past. I think it is more about the Labour membership and how the Labour membership is shifting on this like it was significant that Keir Starmer mentioned all these different legacies of the new Labour years and had a big round of applause for that at conference and then as you were saying he was asked about Blair recently and he said you know why always cite Blair as one of the people mm. I I admire because he was a winner. I think that there is a conscious decision to own the successes of the last Labour government and to therefore sort of rehabilitate Blair in the minds of Labour members. And that's kind of what Labour MPs have been talking about, that they sense that it's a bit like before Blair won last time, that eventually, you know, the the hostility towards either Blair or Starmer kind of dissipates and people just become a bit a bit less ideological and a bit more open to a winner i'm sure lots of listeners will who you know see themselves as on the left of the labor party won't agree with that but labor mps say that in within their memberships they're kind of identifying a little bit of a shift people who supported corbyn are actually thinking we're sick of losing i think it's yeah it's sort of tapping into that mood because clearly labor will eventually win when in part, like a big contributing factor would be when everyone in Labour is so sick of losing that they band together a bit more to win. The, the thing is, is that it is true to say that Keir Starmer consciously does the Attlee did this, it was great. Wilson did this, it was great. Blair is this, it was great. Because he thinks, essentially, if you trash your previous record, you, yeah, you can't go, oh yeah, the last Labour government was so bad and the guy shouldn't, yeah, he should be the first prime minister not to get a knighthood, but you should definitely vote for another Labour government. He 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 thinks that that's not how you win. Now, that is, of course, how if you talk to sort of new Labour grandees now, they will say that too. But if you actually like Tony Blair did not from 1994 to 1997 spend ages telling everyone how great Harold Wilson was. In fact, you know, if you read Harold Wilson's obit in The Guardian in 1995, it's astonishingly mean-spirited for, you know, <laughs> the last person to have won an election. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, done a lot of transformative stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the central Blairite insight, Homer, was that, well, actually, and indeed this is true of all oppositions, what is the most powerful word you can attach to yourself? It's new. It is the idea that it's time for a change, right? The weird irony is, and like, if you look at the cuts that Jeremy Corbyn was proposing to reverse, they were cuts to Blair era programming, to, to Blair era programs, right? Other, other than the spending commitment on tuition fees, which of course Keir Starmer retains, another way that he is not a Blairite, um, on tuition fees, right? There was about restoring the size of of the the state to, um, yeah, in terms of the public spending. Also, there was nationalisations, but you know. But it's not like he went round going, I'm going to make it 2010 again. He ran as a change proposition. But the thing is, like, most of the media does not think Keir Starmer is going to win the next election. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, and I don't even think that most of them think that he would be doing better off if he were more Blair-like. But the interesting gamble about this Labour project is it thinks that the way it wins is by rehabilitating the idea of Labour governments, plural, yeah, which yeah. is why it mm. does this arc of Attlee, Wilson, Blair in all of, all of, of the speeches. Um, Keir Starmer personally took a lot of heart from the fact that when they were debating uh, the anti-Semitism rule changes, 
the hall kind of quietened people down, just as you do a lot from, you know, people, the people who kind of, you know, when they started doing that weird Tinkerbell clap during his speech where they, yeah, when people were booing, so other people started yeah. standing up and being like, I do believe in Keir Starmer. <laughs> One of the things lots of Labour MPs will say is, well, what I found heartening is I know that the person who stood up and clapped doesn't agree with Keir, didn't vote for him, but they think we look terrible on television with the booing, so they felt they had to stand up and clap. But that, again, is not a Blairite thing. That is the middle of the Labour Party coming to terms with circling the wagons of its leadership. And in many ways, I think the interesting thing about this Labour project is it is the thing that the Tories tend to do a bit, bit quicker, right? So in 1997, right, they have this big, big loss and they go, that was rubbish. We'd like to win again. William Hague spends a lot of time giving speeches about how he, he wants to win again. There was not a, I would say, a big and deep engagement in why New Labour had beaten them. That took until David Cameron to kind of come up with, a, okay, what do I think they've done? What do I think I need to respond to? And obviously Cameron's great trick was pretending to be this like, you know, this like liberal Bowden dad while, achieve, while delivering this incredibly um, radical programme. And in some ways, Keir Starmer has just got to the like, it's important that we win again. But, you know, although there are, you know, interesting stuff on the environment... Yeah, some of the labour market stuff is very good. I would say, I don't think you could say that the, the Labour Party had reached a level of engagement with what they felt this Conservative government was about that equaled the level of engagement for good and for ill in the successes, failures, the ways that Thatcherism had built hegemony um, in the early years of New Labour, or indeed the ways that David Cameron interrogated and sought to sort of you know, to to reverse New Labour's own own sort of hegemony. And there is, I think, still, that's a very good article in the Sunday Times I wrote a couple of weeks ago, there is still like a massive absence in this Labour project. And to me, at least, the essential verities of Blairism are about having that analysis of why the other lot are beating you, rather than, as Keir Starmer's speeches often seem to suggest, the, the Conservative Party wins all the time because the Labour Party has just been a bit of a rabble for the last 10 years. Now, the Labour Party has been a bit of a rabble for the last 10 years for a variety of reasons. But that's not the only reason why the Tories have kept winning, not least because the Tories win most of the time in this country. So, no. God, yeah, really, I'm really going out on a very right-wing <laughs> high. No, he's not a Blairite. Blair is unpopular. And also, just parties shouldn't talk that much about their past. They should always talk about the future. Yes, yeah. But though, that, to me, is the central Blairite analysis is our... You need to own the future. You need to have an understanding of why the other lot keep beating you. And you, you know, need to have a, a serious program that's built around the needs of people in the present day. Um, and I think, actually, you know, the serious program, the labour market stuff, for all I'm dubious about some of the insourcing manufacturers, like that, that, that bit stands up and works. Analysis of the Tories is entirely absent, and they are directly doing the reverse of that with the like, oh, you know, we're part of this long arc of, like, transformative labour government. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Mae Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.